Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Saturday. Welcome to All the Things. I am Monique Dusan. And I am Krista Bontrager. And this is the show where we discuss all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. She is also known as Theology Mom, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> yes. And helping us out on the show tonight is Bob Bontrager. There he is. Making sure all the things do all the things. That's right. All those buttons going in the right direction. Yes. And if you're live on Facebook or YouTube, please join us in the chat. We will answer questions and love to hear from you. Let us know where you're watching from. That's right. And our guest moderators tonight are Caleb Harrelson from Engage Truth. What's up, Caleb? And our brave and faithful production assistant, Allison Wardrop and I heard a rumor that the world famous Emily Bontrager is going to be jumping on there too. Okay. So there it is. Let us know you're watching. Tell us uh, where you are. We see you, Reggie, there from the central coast of California. Jump on and let us know you're watching and from where, because this is a part of being the family of God. Yes. Hey, Kathleen, we see you from Stafford, Virginia. Yep. And I know Rihanna's here. She said groovy music. Hey, <laughs> yes. All right. Let's jump right on in. Yeah. What, what, what's going on? Well, you know, it's getting toward the holidays. Mm -hmm. This is going to be our show before Thanksgiving. Yes. We'll, we'll be dark next week. Yes. So people can uh, don't look for us on Saturday. Night. We, we will. We will be shut down. We'll be resting. So we need a little vacation. Um, but. Yeah, I think things are good. I just 2020 is just continuing to be a peculiar year. It is. But trusting the Lord in everything. I think you and I take turns having moments of trying to encourage one another and not be in despair. Is that aka for emotional instability? <laughs> we just gonna put it out there, y'all. Yesterday was rough for me. Um, yeah, we do. We have, it, it, it gets rough. It does. But I think that that's part of just being human and also i think the the proof sometimes that we are really meant for connection like it's so hard to to not always have connection to not be able yeah. to just run to your friend's house our governor here in california put us on a 10 p.m curfew because rona don't live past 10 <laughs> i don't i mean or maybe she only comes out at 10 i have no idea but um <laughs> so there's that yeah we we're on a curfew here it's a little peculiar so we want to invite you to share the show. Um, we're going to have a great conversation tonight with uh, a new friend in talking about a little bit of a perspective on this cultural moment. There's a lot of growing conversation about persecution and, you know, what does persecution look like for Christians? So we've got a great guest we're going to be talking to. So go ahead and hit that share button, hit the, the thumbs up. Uh, make a comment. All of those things help the algorithm and help us overcome uh, the shadow banning on Facebook and YouTube. So the more you interact with the show, the more it helps us out. And this show is brought to you by Family 210 Clothing. And the Center for Biblical Unity. And, and 
the Theology Mom podcast. Yes, yes. And if you are looking for a Christmas gift, because right after Thanksgiving comes Christmas. I know, right? Yes. Go to the Center for Biblical Unity page, the our website, centerforbiblicalunity.com, and order a shirt or a sweatshirt or a yeah. mug. Or a lot of other merch. We've got... Yes. The, if you buy something for the Center for Biblical Unity and help support Monique's ministry on bringing biblical racial unity of being one in Christ, um, you can go and get that merch there. Um, if you and and five dollars of every purchase goes directly to investing in the, the ministry uh, for Center for Biblical Unity. But we have a lot of other products and uh, that help support our family. So yes. there's some tons of other T-shirts, sweatshirt designs that you can check out there at the Family 210 Clothing Shop. And that money just goes to help support our family. Like we're regular people and um, part of that helps to support us. So it's a great way to invest in all that we do as a family that as we are sowing into others. So, yes, yes, yes. All right. All right. So... Tomorrow, we're going to be in Costa Mesa. Oh, yes. An actual in-person event. So if you want to come hear us do our dog and pony show on critical race theory, come to Costa Mesa tomorrow. She knows I don't like that term. (laughs) That's why she uses it. I'm convinced. So our friend uh, Brett Kunkel. Yes. Invited us. Yeah. He has a, a ministry to parents. It's uh, like for homeschools and things like that. Yeah, he kind of sees his niche as like educating the child influencers. Mm -hmm. So that could be children's pastors, parents, teachers, um, but people who influence children as they're raising him in the faith. He's trying to educate those people. So so it's a Maven Truth, I think. And they have partnered with Brett's church. And so last week, Dr. Thaddeus Williams spoke on social justice. And tomorrow we're going to follow up. He did a really good talk and prepped things really well for us to be able to come in and talk about CRT, critical race theory and Christianity, where it's coming into the church, how it's coming into the church and all of that. So we'll be doing that and then we'll be filtering questions at the end. So we'd love to see some family members uh, come out. And if you live in the area, come come up and say hi afterwards. Don't be a stranger. And it will be live streamed. So you can find it. You should be able to find it on our Facebook page, but also no. on um, on the no. YouTube, no. their YouTube that's page. That's not it. But we will have it that's, up that's not tomorrow. It. And I think there's, a, there's already some announcements to it, but we will have a link. Okay. Yeah. All the links are on the... Center for Biblical Unity Facebook page. Don't go to the Navigating the Worlds of Screen Conference. That was from February. Okay. Uh, all right. Let, you ready to get get into it here? Let's do it. All I'm right. ready. So, yeah, I think that a lot of people have been reaching out to us in recent months asking us questions about our perspectives on, you know, do you think Christians are going to start to be persecuted for their faith? What's going to happen after the election? Is Jesus coming back? Is Jesus coming back? There's a that, lot of- that's it. It's like, are we being persecuted? You think he's coming back? Are we being persecuted? You think he's coming back? Yeah. Sort of how the conversation goes. Yeah. Um, I One of the points that I made in a short video a month or so ago is that Christians really need to have like a long-term vision in mind. Um, we can't just think, well, what we're going through feels unstable. So that must mean Jesus is coming back. Like we have to have a more historical lens through which we're viewing things. And, you know, we don't know when Christ is coming back 
but he still tells us to be his representatives and his ambassadors as long as he tarries. So, you know, how can we be strong in our faith Mm -hmm. in the middle of cultural instability? That's, that's kind of the big question that a lot of people are raising. And so we have a very special guest tonight to help us talk about that. Um, And I want to do a little bit of setup here Uh, for those of you who might be newer to the show. We've, we've had a few uh, friends come on the show from um, the Eastern side of Christianity. So we as Protestants we're we're more in the West and uh, Christianity as the gospel went out, there were five ancient centers of, of the Christian faith. And one of those centers in, in the ancient context was the city of Alexandria in, mm-hmm. in Egypt. And that was a big hub for the ancient church. And that church is called the Coptic church. It's Egyptian Christianity. It's very ancient. It goes back to the apostle Mark and it's founded in the sixties, like as in 60 AD. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, uh, these are, truly ancient Christians, some of the most ancient. And so we have a very amazing guest on our show today, um, Abuna Anthony Murad from Coptic Orthodox Answers, which is a fabulous YouTube channel that I've mentioned several times on the show as a resource. So let's get Abuna Anthony on. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. (laughs) Hey, guys. Thanks Thanks for being with us. It's an honor. Thank you guys for allowing me to take the blessing. Oh, no, you're in Canada, right? I am. I'm in Ottawa, Canada, in the capital. Okay. All right. Now, as my Coptic friends would say, they they would say, we're everywhere. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, definitely. We have definitely filled every nook and cranny of the globe. That's right. Awesome. Now, in, in more of the Protestant stream, we would say pastor... Can you tell us what does, like, just before we start getting down too far down the line, what does Abuna mean? Very good question. So the word Abuna is just the Arabic translation for the word father. Okay. In reality, you know, as I present myself to so many of my brothers and sisters here in, you know, in the North American reality, I present myself as Father Anthony. But in the Coptic tradition, because we have so many people who have immigrated um, from Egypt, which is now a very Arabic and Islamic culture, mm-hmm. the native language there is Arabic. And so because of that, they'll use the title of Abuna generically. So uh, even though I'm speaking to a fully second generation English speaking young man and woman, they'll still insist on calling me Abuna. It's just their way of using the title of uh, calling me father, which I know to some people might be a problem. And I know that depending on the tradition that you come from, calling anyone father might be an issue. Um, But in our tradition, because we're an apostolic faith and because uh, the Orthodox Church really takes down its tradition from so much of what the early church taught, we really have no problem giving the title of Abba, which is father, Mm -hmm. um, to those who have been called to the holy order of priesthood. Very good. And so in the Orthodox tradition, one of the things I've really learned to come to appreciate and and respect is how the priest functions as a spiritual father to the people in the parish. And it can be a wonderful, even lifelong relationship that people have with their spiritual father. And that is where so much of the conversation and discipleship 
happens one-on-one in that relationship. It is a very important relationship in the life of many Orthodox believers and something that, um, you know, we kind of go about those conversations in a little bit different way in Protestantism, but I've certainly learned to come to understand and, and respect um, that, that practice, that time honored practice um, in the Orthodox tradition. So thanks for walking us through that a little bit. <laughs> no problem. No yeah. problem. Well, please tell us about yourself. Tell us about the Coptic Answer Channel. Yeah. So I'm uh, Father Anthony Murad. I have been now um, a priest called to the ministry for a little bit over six years. I'm actually originally from Montreal. Mm -hmm. um, but when the calling for the ministry came around, it was actually for a church in Ottawa. And, and here's, uh, here's an interesting fact for you guys. When it comes to the Coptic Orthodox, right, you don't go to seminary and choose to study theology only then to maybe see if you will be ordained into the priesthood, which is a very typical process that you might see in many other apostolic traditions. In the Coptic rite, what's really interesting is that you do not delegate yourself. You do not nominate yourself for the priesthood. You must be selected. So basically, uh, I was completely caught off guard, thinking myself completely unworthy and unfit to serve in any which way. I actually needed to be guided more than anything else. Um, and by God's grace, um, whether it be through my own spiritual counselor, my father of confession, and the local priest in Ottawa, uh, who supposedly did their homework, which I think they're completely lying. I think they have hazardly just picked the name out of a ballot and they, and they ended up with me, poor people. But regardless, um, the process is actually really interesting. And so after the very lengthy process, um, I was told to come serve here in Ottawa, and then uh, I was ordained into the priesthood. Now, what happens in the Coptic Rite, is that there's almost this honeymoon phase that you spend where you spend 40 days of discipleship at a monastery. And I was given the chance to be able to go to a monastery that was established in the 5th century, St. Mary's Monastery of Al-Bagamos in Egypt. This is actually in the wilderness of Skitis where you have so many of the ancient monastic movements happening. That very specific monastery is a monastery that has a history that dates all the way back to over 1,500 years. And here I was finding myself in a reality where I have access to all of these elders. I have access to hermits. I have access to people who have literally dropped everything and dedicated their lives to God. Uh, and what really happened is that I felt like for 40 days, I was getting punched in the face with how wealthy and just how rich and beautiful and sweet the church truly is. And I got to tell you, th this was a really big awakening moment for me because while I was part of the faith my entire life, and this is what I say to so many of um, the young people that I am now responsible for here in my parish, I tell them I was Christian my entire life, but I feel like I've only been Orthodox ever since I became a priest. Mm. And the reason that I say that is that that experience at that monastery exposed me to a reality that transitioned from theory into true practical life. It's as if I knew about God without actually knowing him. And then I came face to face with giants, people who had tasted him and known him in a way that was so unimaginable to me. And that really provoked within me a reaction of I wanted to know more. And after leaving the 40 days at the monastery, I began doing so much research. I began challenging everything I know to the point where the very fundamentals of the things that I thought I knew about the gospel, about the Lord Jesus Christ and his ministry and the church, 
I just chose to challenge everything. I wanted to know why I believed what I believed. And what I discovered is that I had spent a little bit over 30 years memorizing the right answers without necessarily knowing why does the faith actually say that? Why is this the statement of faith? And the more I discovered, the more I was amazed at just how wealthy and rich and sweet and beautiful you know, the faith really is. And I discovered the early church and the writings of the early fathers. And I discovered the history of the church. And I discovered so much that I was basically that kid in the candy store running around with a whole bunch of stuff in my hands telling other people, did you taste this? Did you know about this? Did you have any idea that this existed? To the point where I annoyed, annoyed so many of the other priests around me who were like, yeah, yeah, yeah we knew all of this. Like, where have you been? <laughs> but that's fine. I mean, that was my learning process. And that actually provoked within me this deep desire to want to share what I thought was so essential, the things that I wish I had known growing up in Canada, in North America, as a Coptic Orthodox youth, but that didn't have access to all of this wealth because of many reasons. Yeah. And, and that's where Coptic Orthodox Answers came about. I just wanted to share. Well, that, that's so good. Um, part of, well, I used to and not to go down a long journey, but I, for a long time, held on to a belief that encompassed the idea that Christianity was the white man's religion. And a lot of my coming out of that belief system was due to Coptic answers, like, or um, the conversation that we had with Carillos, as we mentioned earlier, you know, it, and going back to the earliest parts of Christianity and understanding like, hey, this really has African roots. And, um, you know, the the first convert, I believe it was, it was done like in Northern Africa and um, the Ethiopian, the Ethiopian eunuch. eunuch. Thank That's you. Right. I was losing my words. Um, and so I, I hear what you're saying. I completely agree. It's like there's something that you grow up with or there's a way of thinking about something about Christianity and then you see the other side of it and you begin to want to tell people about it and say, hey, no, you know, did you know this or did you know that? And um, it's just it's a good way to to really get to dig deeper into what we believe and why we believe it and what are the traditions of our faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love your channel because you have a lot of just really short videos and people can really orient themselves if they're ever wondering, like, well, what have Christians historically believed mm -hmm. about the Trinity, the incarnation, you know, just everything. I love your live Q&As. I'm usually catching those while I'm at, sitting at my desk at work. And um, right now you're doing a, a great series on St. Cyril. Um, and I'm totally enjoying the deep dive into the gospel of John uh, that Father uh, Gabriel's been doing. So just so many great resources there. So want to commend people if they want to dig deeper into the historic Christianity, they can go check out Coptic Answers. Well, maybe tell us a little bit about the history of Christianity in Egypt, because uh, I think this is going to be some new information for many of our viewers. Mm -hmm. uh, they might not have ever kind of had a little crash course on on that so egypt uh, egypt is a really interesting place right because especially when you take a look at scripturally egypt whenever it's mentioned typically it's not for good reasons right egypt was always been 
the place of slavery, the stronghold of the devil. Whenever we even give comparisons of what Pharaoh represents, he oftentimes represents the enemy of the nation and the people of God. And so Egypt was always seen as the place where all the pagan idols were. Um, and for the longest time, that's, that's the way it stood until the Lord intervened and he took his people out of Egypt. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because this goes to show to what extent the Apostle Mark, who is our evangelist, the one who first went with St. Peter to Rome and helped establish the church there, only then to be sent to Alexandria. And as you mentioned a little bit earlier, established in the very first century around the turning point of the year 60, where he decides that he's going to come preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to these people who are basically this like eclectic reality of like, it's a melting pot of pagan worship. You got to remember that at the time, Alexandria and specifically the, the, the Egypt and specifically the city of Alexandria, it was an economic and political and educational hub. And so because of this, you had so many different belief systems come and like exist in that reality. And Mark comes and he establishes the church there. And he begins by simply gathering a household of people. Uh, and then eventually he establishes the faith there. And those first Christians were simply called were simply people who believed in what was given to them by the Apostle St. Mark. Eventually, we know that St. Mark is actually killed, um, and he offers his life to the faith in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is recognized as a martyr, but he leaves this successive, he leaves this basically the seed that he planted, and the church continues to grow. And for almost 300 years, the church is very heavily persecuted in Egypt. And as you know, the first three centuries, all of Christianity was persecuted, right? If you were a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ in any way in those first 300 somewhat years, chances are you were going to be either bullied or forced to pay a tax or slaughtered if you didn't basically offer incense to the idols. That was simply what was happening in the empire at the time. And then eventually what ends up happening is that we know that historically, when Constantine the emperor shows up, he basically allows uh, through an edict that Christianity be acceptable, eventually becomes the law of the land. And because of the economic and political and educational status of Egypt, when Christianity is now legal, Alexandria actually starts to step up to the responsibility of being one of the patriarchal sees of the entire Christian reality. So within Christendom, there was four and then later five major cities that identified themselves as the hubs of the Christian reality. And one of them was Alexandria. And this is the same church that produced people like, you know, St. Athanasius the Apostolic, uh, Anthony the Great, who was recognized as the forefather of all monasticism, St. Cyril of Alexandria, the theological school of Alexandria. All of these, all of these things happen within the reality of the flourishing church. But eventually, we know that history has a way of demonstrating to us that the enemy of mankind, the devil, when he can't fight us externally, he fights us internally. He causes division among us. He wants us that if we're not going to bow the knee because of being forced to, um, to respond to threats externally, then he causes uh, corruption and conflict between us. And we know that what ends up happening is that the Church of Alexandria ends up going into isolation because of the Council of Chalcedon, and that's a story for another day. Uh, and the only reason I mention this is that within no time afterwards, Egypt is overtaken, and we fall under the rule of people who don't like Christianity, right? And then when you end up looking into the history of the 6th and 7th century, 
were overtaken by Islam. And then from there, it, it's history. Christianity becomes a minority. And Christians are really forced in Egypt at that point in time to make one of two decisions. Either you pay a tax in order for you to remain a Christian, or if you can't pay the tax, you have two options. You either convert and become Muslim, or uh, you die. And those are really the options that were given to us. And so the church went from a place of we're preaching to the entire world, we're participating in con contributing to the faith and contributing to the life of the church globally, to suddenly being in a reality where your only focus is survival. And so your focus, to, your focus now shifts to looking internally, where you only look at your people. You're trying to keep them safe. You're trying to survive and hold on to the faith. You're trying to convince people not to leave what has been handed down to them, not out, to, out of fear or out of corruption, to not give up the truth. And this has really been the reality of the church now for, I want to say, approximately uh, 1,300, 1,400 years. And this is the reality that has, it continues to exist to a certain extent, even until today in the 21st century. I think that's a really important point because it is such an, an embedded part of your culture as a Coptic Orthodox Christian that you have been living as a minority religion at, and as a cultural minority for over a thousand years. Mm -hmm. And that martyrdom is embedded into the Egyptian Christian self identity and and culture and i'm just wondering if you can paint that picture a little, a little bit more um of what are some of the specific challenges that christians have historically faced like have they been second class citizens are they excluded from certain kinds of education certain kinds of public gatherings maybe you can give us a few specifics of what that looks like well, in Egypt, you know, there's a spectrum of, you know, how bad it could get. You know, it could be something as as little as you might not ever get promoted uh, in your current workplace because you identify as a Christian. Hmm. Uh, and they can go all the way to, you know, we burn your church down or we, you know, we we, <laughs> we abduct your daughters or, you know, we we kill your father. Like all, all of these things are very real. And. and the thing is, is that when we speak of persecution, we oftentimes fail to realize that, you know, there's many different facets to what persecution looks like. Mm -hmm. and, and the Coptic Church is a church that because it lives in a reality where, you know, government and religion work hand in hand, we do live under Islamic law. And because we live under Islamic law, we are considered to be the religious minority. And not just only the religious minority, we're a religious minority that, based on the Islamic faith, we're blasphemers. We, we do not share the truth that they declare to be true. And in so doing, you know, when you identify as a Christian and you're public about it, you know, you are extremely offensive. Um, and as you know, more than ever today, within the North American reality, when somebody is offended, they believe they have rights over you. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when you live in that kind of reality, just, just to give you an idea, I was speaking to a young man just last year who God has given him an incredible talent. He's an incredible athlete. And he had the opportunity to get signed to a very serious professional contract to go back home and to play on the Egyptian national team. Within no time, within no time, he packed his bags and he came back because everyone from the administration, including the staff and the players, made it very clear that they want nothing to do with the Christian athlete on the professional team. 
that's one example of how it is a person might suffer. But if you go back historically, I mean, you, 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 this is not even something that is, um, it, we don't have to exhaust it. I mean, if you look back at 2015, 21 young Coptic mm -hmm. men were martyred on the beaches of Libya for their faith. And they were li in Libya just working to try to support their families. In 2017, we had two churches bombed in April during the Feast of Palm Sunday. Uh, a little bit later, that same year, we had a seven-year-old woman uh, who lived in a very um, ultra-extreme area in Egypt where there's a lot of... Um, um, there's a lot of extreme religious thought there. And she was dragged through the street naked and embarrassed. This is a seven-year-old woman. Uh, and she would have been killed if people had not intervened. But let me, let me be clear on something. And I think this is important to mention. We actually have been graced recently to have a very understanding president who actually sees the people not in classifications of religion as much as he sees them as children of the nation. And so he wants everyone to be treated as equally as possible. But things don't change overnight. You know, when 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 there is when persecution is not seen as persecution, when persecution is seen as a right, when it's seen as a norm, uh, then the people who participate in that persecution, they don't believe that they're doing anything wrong. If anything, they think that they're participating in some sort of cleansing or correction of the societal reality that they live in. Mm -hmm. And I think this is where it gets really scary when we are willing to look at people and say, your life doesn't matter or your opinion should be muted. And yes, I believe in certain values, but you don't get to participate in those values because you stand against me. Mm -hmm. And when we start speaking in those terms, that's where we see the really ugly truth of how this is simply and, and naturally stated, it is nothing more than evil. It is truly persecution. And so the Coptic church has been undergoing this for such a long time, but let me, let me just say something, and I think this is important. Um, I really honestly believe that one of the greatest gifts that the Lord God has allowed us to have within the Coptic Orthodox reality is persecution. Mm -hmm. Because discomfort has a way of making you very real about your faith. It forces you to get on your knees. Mm -hmm. Comfort, on the other hand, encourages you to worship yourself rather than to rely on God. When we have lived in a reality where there was persecution, it forces you to look up to him. It forces you to know him because you no longer rely on legislation. You no longer rely on government. You no longer rely on insurances. You no longer rely on anything but him. It forces you to refocus your life. And I have to say that I don't think that I would be a second generation Coptic priest in North America if it wasn't for my family undergoing persecution, choosing to leave and to immigrate to have a new life for their children, and then passing on the importance of that faith to their kids because they knew that there would be no chance of survival, no chance of having any sort of hope in life if it wasn't for their faith. Man, that's good. That, that, that's a good word. And it, to me, it brings it right home to what we're experiencing today with, you know, it, if you if you have a different thought than me, then I have a right to cancel you. I have a right to to and and I don't I don't want to conflate the term because this by no means to me is like persecution that we would see, you know, in Egypt. But, you know, it it, it 
borders the beginnings of that. Like, where do where will this eventually stop? You know, if I have the right to to stand against you today or to fire you because you think so differently than me or to whatever, you know, because you think differently than me, I think that we could potentially be at the beginnings of, you know, some some very serious, serious issues. Uh, Caleb has a great comment here on Engaged Truth. It's the last one. It's on YouTube, Bob. Uh, he says, it's interesting to think about how the persecutors yes. view what they are doing as a cleansing or correction. And I think that's such a a powerful way of describing it, Abuna, because um, I I think in the American context, we call it canceling, you know, that there's this. But it is cleansing. But it is, you know, it is it is a correction. And that can look a lot of different ways. We get many, many, many letters from people that are like, you know, how do I um, resist, you know, these secular philosophies in my workplace? Like I'm being forced to sign uh, statements that seem borderline religious in mm-hmm. what I'm what I'm pledging to to do and to stand for. And one of the things that Monique and I have been talking about is, you know, at some point Christians are going to have to have some some hard conversations on yeah. boundaries and, and, you know, what, what they're going to stand for and what they're not. And in some cases that might impact their employment. I'm wondering like in, in the experience of the Coptic tradition, like how does, how do you engage in discipleship conversations with, with young adults to help keep them from leaving the faith because it might, you know, conversion to Islam might be easier or leaving the church might be easier than, than enduring this. Like, what are some of the things that shape those conversations for you? I think at the end of the day, the only thing that we can bring it back to is the gospel. And I, and I think the Lord Christ was, was very clear on this. And this is why sometimes it boggles me when we speak of the gospel as a means to be able to promote the idea of, uh, of uh, of health and wealth i i think it, the lord christ is very very clear that, that if you want to be my disciple then there's a carrying of the cross and i think we forget that that's not that that's not symbolic he's not speaking metaphorically anybody who carries a cross ends up crucified that's yeah. what happens when you carry crosses and then he he tells his disciples they will hate you because they hate me and he tells them don't ever forget the servant is not greater than his master. If they have done this to me, then they will do the same to you. I, I think it's in the Gospel of St. John, where he tells them that there will be a time where they will kick you out of the synagogues, where they will kill you, and they will think that they are doing God a favor. They are doing the will of God. We forget this. And so the purpose is to help our young men and women to refocus and tell them, listen, he warned us. He told us this is coming. And if we choose to be his followers then it's not because we're looking for the temporal comforts of this world. We're not looking for the promotions of this world. We really do believe in an eternal life with him, a union with him, this fellowship that extends into eternity. And what that really translates into is that we're really just transiting here, aren't we? There's this beautiful passage in um, in the rite, in the Coptic rite of the liturgy of St. Basil, where we say the words, and we too who are sojourners in this world, grant us your peace and keep us in your faith until the end. 
this idea of we're just sojourners, it literally reminds us that we're transiting. This is not our final destination. So I don't need to invest all of my time and energy and my hopes and my dreams as if everything has to happen in the next 60, 70, 80, 90 years. I really do have to prepare for eternity. And if that means that within the span of eternity, these 80 years that I'm going to live here are nothing but a drop in the ocean of my existence and my union and my fellowship with the Holy Trinity, then I really have no problem enduring a short-term pain for a much greater long-term gain. If we can get our young men and women to think in this way, then they almost reach a point where they can embrace suffering. They can smile throughout it. And they can turn to Christ and tell him, Lord, as you suffered justly, uh, unjustly at the hands of those who hated you, then allow me to be able to endure. Give me that long suffering. Grant me the spirit that will give me the patience for me to keep my eyes on you so that just as I share in the suffering of the body of Christ, I may also be able to share in your eternal glory when you see the time fit. I think that's such a good word because when we're thinking about as parents, what conversations do we need to have with our children, with our young people? Something I've been saying on my channel now for about a year is I think that Christian parents need to engage in part of their discipleship of the, with their children is to orient them towards suffering, that suffering is part of our faith and persecution could be a possibility in their lifetime. Now it could be on a, a spectrum of, of different things that could happen, uh, some extreme, some, some less or so, but, but that that needs to be part of our identity as, as Christians. Parents need to be engaging in those conversations. Um, I think pastors need to be engaging in those conversations. Uh, I think that it's, you, you've just given us a lot of, yeah wisdom there in 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 that um we normally talk a lot more but we're just sitting here having our minds blown yeah. so pardon us yeah. pardon us yeah yeah it um someone posted on facebook i want to say her name is luna lily maybe uh, yeah luna lily she said it's interesting there is persecution within the church and then she wrote that right before you went into you know, calling us to remember that there will be people who will put you out of the synagogue thinking they are doing so under the name and will of God, you know, mm -hmm. and that's what we're seeing in the church, too. Like, you don't believe in this or if you're not for gay, you know, affirming. gay affirming or the social justice narrative and all this stuff, you should be put out. Yeah. So when you look at what's happening in America right now, um, what challenges do you think Christians could be facing sooner um, rather than later? Like, what do you kind of see on the horizon? Uh, I know you're not the son of a prophet, but I'm just wondering if what you if you have any thoughts about what you think is our current climate or where we might be heading. I think to agree a little bit with what Monique was saying earlier, I think this is very much you know, the very, this is the tip of the iceberg that is clearly pointing to some forms of persecution, um, especially at the level of ideology and thought, because if I can force you to think a certain way, I can completely transform the landscape of society. And if I can do that through bullying, and let's, let's be very clear, that's exactly what's happening, right? Um, and while, while you did ask the question in regards to what's happening 
in the USA right now, I got to tell you, it's it's not any better in, in Canada. Mm-hmm. I mean, North America in general, this what is called the progressive way of thinking is actually not as progressive as much as it is. And and forgive me, I, uh, I'm just going to. It's okay. You can be honest. What's on my heart. Yeah, it's go not ahead. progressive as much as it is demonic. Yes. I mean, let's, let's, let's be very clear. Call a thing a thing. It, precisely. And at the end of the day, this is, it's completely untrue. And what it does is that it forbids you from challenging it. Because the greatest thing that I'm seeing that is the biggest danger right now is that there's a complete hypocritical narrative that exists right now that applies only to one group of people. No, we actually celebrate free speech unless your speech goes against what I want you to say. I celebrate this idea of diversity, but unless your specific form of diversity stands against what I want you to say, there is this bullying from the top down effect, this enablement of people being forbidden to speak, forbidden to dialogue, forbidden to ask questions. And it's no longer the pursuit of truth as much as it is the narrative of forcing something down your throat. And if you really look at what's happening, The greatest indication for me that this is demonic is the fact that the greatest outcome of this very progressive social justice warrior narrative is comfort. And there's no room for comfort in the Christian way of life. Everything points to this idea of what what, what am I benefiting? How does this make me happy? I get to be my own God. Let Let me just share this one image with you. And then I'm going to stop speaking because I can ramble forever. But I, I, I want to hear what you guys have to say about this also. But, um, you know, in the early church, they used to take the Christian person and place him in front of an idol and say, offer incense. And that would be your form of conversion. And people would die, would die rather than offering incense to the idols. Hmm. Today, the North American person or the Western-minded person the person who has adopted this way of thinking, regardless of where they are on the globe, what are they really doing? They're standing in front of a mirror and offering incense to themselves. This is what I think is most dangerous. We have enabled people to worship their ego, to worship what they want. You want to believe that you are someone other than who you are? No problem. You define your identity. You can even define my identity. Whatever is real for you is real. You don't think this is black? You think it's purple? So be it. We're celebrating that it's purple. Where is truth in all of this? If there is no search for truth, regardless of how I feel, regardless of how uncomfortable it makes me, the truth should not be conditional upon my acceptance of it. What makes something true is that it is true. If I cannot pursue it for what it is, then I'm not interested in truth as much as I'm interested in myself. Abuna Anthony, you coming all the way through. <laughs> oh my goodness. Now in black church, here in the, in the States, I don't know if they do it anywhere else, but we will fan you when you say a good word, I'm gonna fan you. Okay, you go ahead, go ahead and preach. And see, this is what we need. We need somebody to just come with truth. You can't give a watered down message because when you give a watered down message, you're going to get a watered down faith and you're you're going to sit there offering your incense to your idol, which is yourself. You better come through. Yes. I like you, Monique. You're good for my ego. You should stick around. <laughs> I like you. I'm, I'm just saying that's true word right there. Yes. That's good. Yeah, we're getting some good, good comments on YouTube. Uh, people really enjoying uh, what you're bringing there. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, uh, yes. my goodness, everyone was telling Monique she had to get out your, her fan for you. She was a little. <laughs> Cassie said, "Mic drop," because he was. He was like, da, 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 da. <laughs> "I said what I said." That I was. Yeah, you did. I, I don't have no comeback. I'm not here for it. You said what you said. That was awesome. Yeah, and, and it's like well, I'm gonna need to go back and watch this myself. <laughs> I think as we're thinking about, I want to try to catch. Was there a um, okay, uh, our friend Caleb, who's also one of our moderators tonight, he has a question. It's on YouTube, Bob. Uh, what ways do you think we should resist as Christians? Um, w- do you have any thoughts? Like he has a couple of specifics here. Like what is this business about paying taxes? Now you mentioned earlier that in Egypt, some Christians have to even pay an extra tax. Um, do you think that that's part of the, the humility of, of, you know, just even obeying a corrupt government and paying taxes, you know, cause some of our tax dollars, quite frankly, go to things that we as Christians don't agree with. And, mm-hmm. you know, how do we work that through? Um, should we push back against censorship? Should we, huh? Uh, engage truth? Uh, or, you know, if our workplace is going woke, uh, you know, it's really trying to get us to, I mean, there's, we get many letters from people that are being forced into human resource trainings at their place of employment um, based on social justice. And th- some of this stuff is borderline religious, I, mm-hmm. I think. Um, so just wondering if you have any kind of practical wisdom, uh, biblically speaking, for us on, on how to resist some things. Well, I think for the first part, um, you know, we're invited Scripture clearly tells us that our responsibility is to speak the truth in love. Um, and let me be the first to say, tough love is still love. And so it's okay for us to speak the truth with a little bit of tough love. But we got to be ready for what comes from that. You know, you don't poke the bear and think that nothing's going to happen. And we really are standing in front of a bear. And so if I'm asked my opinion on a very specific subject and I know how unpopular it is, I can't expect that because I'm speaking the truth that somehow people are going to bow down and applaud to me. No, I'm going to face resistance, even if it comes at the cost of, you know, being tagged as the person who is closed-minded, the person who can't be as part of management. You cannot possibly promote this person. Or if it ends up leading to me losing my job or ending a relationship with a person that I care about. All of those things might be consequences of speaking the truth in love, but we are called to speak the truth. The only thing that I would strongly urge people to realize is that we are not called to speak the truth at any cost. We are called to speak the truth in love. And, and I think this is where we fail to realize that where love comes in is that we must really recognize that we are at war, all of humanity. We can never forget that every human being is created in God's image and likeness. What that means is that even the person who's not a Christian bears the image and the likeness of the Lord our God. What that means is that Christ died for the person who is Christian and non-Christian, for the atheist, the Buddhist, the Muslim, anybody and everybody. There is a very deep love that runs through the heart of God for every single human being, which means that our brother or our sister, whoever it may be, that is speaking something that we consider to be basically a lie or demonic, they are not our enemy. The enemy is him who tries to manipulate all of humanity to turn against God. St. Isaac the Syrian, one of the, uh, one of the, um, a great monastic, uh, a great monastic hero 
in, in the early church, he talks about this idea of do not ever waste any time hating your brother, but rather hate the devil who has manipulated the both of you into anger. Mm. There's, this, there's something so important for us to realize that we're not at war against each other. And I think St. Paul mentions it beautifully when he says we do not war against flesh and blood. We war against principalities and dominions and evils and this darkness of another world. And the whole purpose behind that is to have us realize that our responsibility is to rebel not against each other, but rather to rebel against to rebel against this spiritual system that is attacking or plaguing humanity. So if I bring this back to the question of taxes, I think Christ answered this question. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. You, you got to understand in the context of him answering that question, there was no way out of that question. The, the, people, the people, if he would have said, give Caesar, pay Caesar taxes, the people would have, they would have stoned him because they hate, they hate the Roman Empire who has persecuted them. They want nothing to do with the Roman Empire. They don't want to pay a penny to them because they're exploited by them. And if at the same time he says, no, of course, don't pay them, then all they have to do is report him to the authorities, and then he's going to get accused of treason. So he can't win. But the way he gets out of it is by making it clear, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, then give unto God what is God's. And I think this is where, in the, in the Orthodox tradition, the greatest form of rebellion is personal repentance. The greatest form of rebellion against the spiritual warfare that humanity suffers is my personal repentance. If I can lead myself to be in true and sincere relationship with Christ, then I become an icon of him. People begin to see God in me. And if rather than speaking about Jesus, I actually become, and forgive me, this might be very provocative, but I actually become a carrier of Christ to others, not through my words, but through my life, this in and of itself is rebellion. And I think it has to begin there before we begin creating movements where we are activists, before we begin creating petitions, before we do protests. There has to be, there has to be a personal rebellion of repentance. There has to be a personal rebellion of, I will become what he created me to be. And I think that is the greatest source of reform, that when a person is truly holy, when a person is truly edified, when they become an icon of Christ, when people see God within us, when people stop us and say, you're different, there's something about you that intrigues me, that is the greatest form of rebellion against evil. If we can begin with that, we can then have the conversation as to what do we do at the societal level? But I think to do the second part, without the personal repentance, I'm not sure what that will contribute to. If anything, I think it'll yeah. give people more ammunition to look at us and say, you Christians are all talk. You yeah. Christians are all talk. I think that's really good because that's similar. You're saying it in different words, but it's the same idea of what Monique and I are always saying is that, you know, personal righteousness, holiness has to come first. Mm -hmm. You know, before we start the conversation about like the large scale systemic injustice issues, like we have to have a conversation of, of what does God require of me as a follower of Christ? And how do I repent of, of my sins? How do I be, um, you know, a, a light and a, a, an example of God's love for others in my life? It's easy to talk about all of these things that are sort of injustices out there. 
<laughs> that mm-hmm. don't affect us really. But when we're talking about loving the person in front of us, mm-hmm. um, you know, like you, you don't know anything about our story, Abuna, but one of the things that, you know, in that Monique came to live with our family, we uh, kind of adopted her into our family because she was disabled and she came in to, to live with us and us taking care of her and helping her recover. And, you know, that to me was, how do I love this person that's right in front of me? I will miss Monique if all I'm doing is looking out there, <laughs> you know, that justice is something out there. Mm-hmm. And, and how do I engage in a stand of love for the person in front of me? And mm-hmm. that's really the re- true rebellion, as, as you put it, of, of how we live out our faith in our everyday lives and, and what that begins to look like. So such a good word. Did you want to jump in? No, I have no oh, I'm literally just still here. I'm going <laughs> to sip my tea because I'm still just literally right here. Okay. Is there any comments you want to go out, out to? Um, Let me see. I think everybody on Facebook was just like, what? Yes and amen. Yes, it's good. Uh, Bobby Melissa says, it's so refreshing to hear truth. The world is so dark. This is like cold water on a hot day. Yeah. Mm. So good. Yes. Uh, we, uh, Julesy17 on YouTube says, growing up as a Christian, I always knew that this was coming. I'm thankful for our Coptic brothers and sisters who have stood for what is true to be our encouragement. So many, many good, good comments. You're, you're helping some people tonight. Yeah, Abuna. Really um, uh, Caleb says on Engaged Truth there at the bottom of YouTube, Bob, if you just scrolled out, there you go. While we are talking about persecution, I think the church needs to think more about being there for other believers that lose their job and Come what on, that Caleb. can look like to help them. Oh, that's a really good comment. I think for me that 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 even that is like an early church model. Well, let's like yeah, yeah. Let's I'm, ask. Yeah, let's, I, how, I, how I, do, I got some thoughts already? Come on. Yes. How, how yes, do yes. you how do you support one another? I am um, fan ready. <laughs> in the uh, in is that the, Jesus on your fan? Don't 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 ask too many it's, questions. But yes, it is. He's a white Jesus. That's awesome. see, if we were if we were in black church. Then on the back of it, instead of saying all the things, it would be a funeral home because that's just how I we see. roll. I don't I know. See. It's Jesus on the front, funeral home on the back. <laughs> but we have authentic yeah. black church fans here. Um, but I'm wondering, what has the church historically done in Egypt to support each other? You know, when there are these impacts in, in people's livelihoods and that sort of thing. It, it really forces you to be able to do exactly what you just said, Krista, to see the person, to see the person. And when you see the person, you see the need. And if you see the need, you see the opportunity to be Christian. And I think this is where we oftentimes fail. And um, especially in the comforts of, again, I'm going to keep bringing it back to this, because we're comfortable in North America, because we hide behind the Constitution, because we say, I have a right to believe certain things. We have no rights. The world hates us, and it's okay for us to accept that. At the end of the day, what ultimately matters is the person. And I think this was the greatest accusation that Christ had against the Pharisees. He goes, here you are talking to me about how it is that I broke the Sabbath, 
and you don't see the man, you don't see the person, you don't see the pain, and you don't even recognize the healing, the restoration, the mercy, the compassion. You can't see it because to you, it's nothing more than theory. To you, it's nothing more than a set of laws. The early church had this way of bringing it back to that because of the necessity. And so, you know, when a person was persecuted, there's this, there's this group of people that we call confessors. Confessors are people that are typically persecuted to the point where they almost become martyrs. They're almost killed for their faith. But, the, you know, they end up surviving the trauma of torture or the trauma of persecution, and they don't end up dying. And so they're not called martyrs as much as the alt confessors. The church used to celebrate these confessors. They used to hold them in high esteem. They used to be able to make sure to provide for them. The widows, those, those, those women who their husbands were, were persecuted and killed, the church took care of from beginning to end. At every single level, they were elevated to the point of dignity where the widow was called by everyone, my mother. They all treated her with respect and with honor because they recognized that you gave up your husband, you offered your husband to the Lord. And this is where I think we can really benefit, where we help people realize that the church is there to celebrate what they have offered for the faith. Was it a job? Was it a relationship? Was it time in prison? Was it? I don't know what they offered, but we, we have to reach a point where the church transcends and doesn't simply become the place where we gather. We have to go back and become the actual church, the body of Christ. And so... The church can't simply be the place where we invite people to come. The church has to be every living member who brings Christ to the people who are in pain, who are in suffering. Because you can, you can only imagine just how much torment and suffering and the mental cruelty that will happen to a person who they place their trust in God and then everything crumbles around them, right? It's so easy for them to be tempted to think, Lord, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me? So when the church steps up, and, and shows those people, no, no, the Lord is very much present. He's present in us. And so we will raise you up. We will give mm. you dignity. We will celebrate what you have offered. This is where when we solidify the faith of that person and we inspire a complete generation to do the same. But when we are telling our children, like, why don't you just be an underground Christian? And forgive me, I'm speaking truthfully because this, this happens. This happens and it happens out of weakness. It happens out of human frailty where, you know, people are told in, in, in persecuted times out of fear and out of love for their children, you know, don't, don't, don't push your luck. Like, I, I want you to come home to me tonight. I don't want anything bad to happen. You worked so hard to be this successful professional. Don't lose that because of an argument, because of a conversation, right? So it's, it's okay. God understands. And I think to a certain extent, that's that's an expression of human frailty. That's an expression of our weakness, of our, how we come to God and we tell him, Lord, we're doing the best we can. It's not easy. But I think when the church steps up, when we as members in the body of Christ elevate each other, when we give dignity to the person who has offered something to the Lord in the form of sacrifice, in the form of persecution, then this becomes something that is contagious. We will have a generation of people who want to offer, who want to witness and who want to speak the truth and love. If we can do that, if we can go back to being that solid church who recognizes those who have stood for the truth and we elevate them, then honestly, I think we're going to piss a lot of people off and we'll be much more Christian. <laughs> <laughs>
Monique's yes. all about that. Yeah. <laughs> womp womp. Yeah. But it is true. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think one thing that comes to my mind is that there's a tendency of in some streams of American Protestantism to think, well, if something happens to the government of America, we get destabilized or um, things become difficult. There's a narrative that we have of like, oh, Jesus, uh, we know that you must be coming soon. <laughs> but I'm thinking that from the Egyptian church perspective, as you said at the very beginning, you've, you've lived under persecution for over a thousand years. Mm-hmm. And you've had to learn how to flourish as a subculture and as many cultures in your parishes, in your local parishes of you know, how do we move forward even in the middle of a lot of cultural hostility and stability? You know, Egypt's, Egypt's lived through wars. They've lived through unrest. Um, and you don't, I, I'm imagining you don't have an orientation of, oh, God, please come back so that we don't have to endure this. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts or, or wisdom or perspective about that. Um, I, what I see as being a particularly American Protestant error. Mm-hmm. I, I think for what has embedded, what has been embedded in so many of our minds, because persecution is such a regular thing to those who are still living um, back in Egypt, um, is that the kingdom is not something you look forward to. The kingdom is something that you are expected to live now. It is accessible now. One of the earliest Christian statements in Scripture is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's really interesting because it it makes a lot more sense if you read it in its original Greek form. In the original Greek, the idea of at hand literally means it's at reach. It's there for the taking. It's not something that is out of reach. There's something that is right there. It is at hand. What does that mean? It means that I don't look forward to the coming of Jesus. I focus on his very real presence here and now. And so that re- completely refocuses, it completely refocuses what I'm looking forward to. Instead of, I, sometimes I feel like when we say, come Lord Jesus, what we're really saying is like, come prove us right. You know, just come show up, flex your muscles, show them that we were right all along, mm-hmm. right? Or come put an end to this nonsense, to this craziness, right? But for the person who is constantly living in a state of chaos, for a person who is constantly living in a state of, I don't know if I'm coming home today then it's no longer about come Lord Jesus as much as it is, I know you're here now. Hmm. I need to know you now. I need you with me now. That relationship has to be happening now. And this is where it's so important to transition from ritual to relationship. What do I mean by that? Is that Christianity is not a set of things that you got to check off your list and say, I did my prayers. I read my scripture. You know, I've gone through the motions and if you're, if you're Orthodox, the list is much longer. I've done my fast. I've attended liturgies. I've confessed monthly. I've done all of these things. It's not about the checklist. It's not about the ritual. Everything is supposed to point to relationship. And so whatever I have now extends into eternity, not the other way around. Hmm. This is why when speaking to so many young people, you know, everybody wants to know like, hey, if I do what I want now, and if I live it up now, and I do my thing now, and I come at the end and I say, I'm sorry, like, am I good? And they they want to know this because they want to know how much they can get away with. And the whole purpose is to try to reveal to them, but this is accessible to you now. 
the kingdom is available to you now, this relationship with the all-holy trinity, this participation in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of this is accessible to us now. And so we can't speak of it as if it was something to come unless we know of it today. And I think this is where, for those who are persecuted, it comes so much more naturally. I don't look forward to an event that's going to put an end to my suffering. I go to the person who has co-suffered. I go to the person of Christ who has carried the cross on my behalf. I go to the person of Christ who can tell me, I know what you're going through. I've been through it. I've been betrayed. I've been backstabbed. I've been hurt by the ones that love me. The ones that I came to save are the ones who crucified me. I've been through all of it. I go to him who knows and understands so that I may know him now. Because if I can have relationship now, and regardless of when he comes, I'm ready. I'm living it now. It's an extension into eternity. So I think that's where, that's where I think that we can benefit in trying to understand it from the lens of the person who's persecuted. I'm not looking forward to something that is to come. I'm pursuing something that's accessible to me now. Go ahead. I, I'm literally just sitting here learning and observing. Like It's such a full message, and it, it gives us so much to reflect on, especially in this moment in American history, yeah. where I think you know America's been extremely blessed. American Christians have been extremely blessed to not go through I think a lot of uh, any persecution. And and now, you know, I don't know. I feel like we've been kind of caught off guard with, with some things and pastors aren't really sure. How, well, how do I speak about this? How do I talk about this? But we have such a good example in Jesus. You know, we can, we should go back to Jesus. And I love what you're saying about, you know, it's it's not that we sh- we are looking for this kingdom that is, you know, way out there, but we have a kingdom that is at hand and a savior who is present with us. And these are the things that we should be raising our children in. So it's not that young people are trying to figure out, you know, well, how much can I get away with before I got to go ahead and just, you know, suck it up and give in. You know, these this is the way that we should be living. But how are we training people, you know, young child or adult convert? Like, how do we train people in their faith? How do we train them in their identity? What is what are the steps that we're taking so that people understand that suffering is guaranteed? Should and, be expected. Yeah, it should be expected. And you have a present savior and a kingdom that is at hand. Yeah. So many great questions, Abuna. You've given our viewers, you've just brought such amazing content, yeah. encouragement, uh, wisdom. Um, I think that people are really, uh, this one comment from Hannah on YouTube, she says, I don't think anyone in our church has thought about this at all. I'm concerned about what our church will do to, or more accurately not do when persecution starts to get really bad. So I think that you're going to inspire some people to think more deeply and to have some conversations in their families and in their churches. Yeah. So this is good. It is. It's really, I think the challenge is, you know, and so now what? Like the, the living now, you know, we live from that place of, the kingdom is here now. We live from that place of, you know, we have a, a, a savior who is with us now. We live from a place. I think what I'm what I'm hearing too is um, of personal righteousness and of boldness. You know, like there to me, there has to be something bold in you, like in in your heart, to live 
amongst persecution and to know like this is this is the way and I'm not going to tell my child, you know, to to shriek back from it or to say that you're not a Christian or to deny any part of your faith. That's good. I don't know. Any last thoughts, Abuna? Uh, you, you just reminded me of, you know, sometimes the message that we're afraid to share with our young people, which I think St. Paul makes so clear uh, and yet we avoid it, which is the whole idea of um, to die is Christ. The, this whole idea of how it is that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Death is not supposed to be something that scares us. If I, if I pursue the real way of Christian, the real Christian call, which is the death of my ego, the death of you know, my worldly pleasures, where I don't make things about me. You know, when St. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but condescended and took on the form of a bondservant and was obedient even to the point of death. This mind that he speaks of, which was in Christ Jesus, is one that was selfless. The word that is used in Greek is kenosis. Kenosis is this idea of a self-emptying, where he pours himself out. This is what death is. It's where I offer myself entirely. If I can do that to the people that I love, imagine, imagine for just a moment that I fulfilled my calling as a husband towards my wife, and I offered myself entirely to her. Imagine if I fulfilled that calling to my children and I offered myself entirely to them. Imagine if I did that with those that I serve in my parish. Imagine if I did that with those who ask questions. Imagine if I did that with my neighbors. Imagine if I was willing to do that with those that people might consider to be my enemies. If I am Christ and I embrace even, even to the point of death, this idea of it's not about me, it's about him who has called me to be his then honestly, I think we would be raising a generation that is so righteous, that is so edified, that is so holy. And I think sometimes we're just afraid of that. I would rather teach my, my child, you know, if the kid punches you in the face, you know, you sock him one too, right? And if somebody takes advantage of you, you get him back. You stand up for yourself. And I'm tempted to say that because I don't like seeing my kid being bullied. But at the same time, how Christian is that? When I say Christian here, how Christ-like is that? So instead of waiting for persecution to come to my door, maybe I should go back to one of the earliest of the church teachings, which is self-persecution, which is declaring war against those things within me, the desire to be comfortable, the desire to choose myself over everyone else. If I declare war against the sinful habits that are within me, that persecution won't be so bad. That's a good word. And I want to commend everyone uh, for more wisdom from the Coptic Orthodox Answers channel on YouTube. Go check it out. Subscribe, uh, like, all of that uh, to get some ancient wisdom and ancient apostolic perspectives on your faith. And uh, I love even they have these words of wisdom clips that they post uh just little excerpts from different homilies from different parishes uh, that they will um, just have little snippets of, mm -hmm. of great wisdom. Usually they're like two or three minutes. Um, you can see Abuna Anthony uh, doing his, his series. Uh, the deep dive series is fantastic too. I love the apostolic answer series, just short responses to very common questions 
lot of practical wisdom, like, you know, how do I deal with, um, you know, the passions? How do I deal with my anger? How do I deal with, with lust? How do I, how do I, what's the biblical apostolic wisdom um, related to those real life issues? What do Christians believe about the Trinity and the incarnation? Yeah. These very foundational parts of our faith. And even on like the things where, you know, Protestants are like, hmm, I'm not sure what to think about that. You know, when it comes to Mary or the saints, you guys have such great answers in explaining the positions very clearly and, and always making me think. My daughter and I love to send each other um, videos from your channel that, that we that have just been edifying to our faith. So I want to commend uh, that as a great resource to people to make you think. It'll, it'll, it might um, bolster your faith. It might challenge your faith and provide some good conversation. So thank you to everyone uh, for, for joining in the conversation yes. and, and encouraging Abuna Anthony tonight. Thank you, Abuna Anthony thank you for, for being with us, for helping us to grow. You guys are, you guys are awesome. God bless your ministry and God bless everything that you're contributing to the kingdom. It's been an honor and a real blessing to share this time oh, with you guys. It's, it's an honor to meet yes, you. God bless you. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you so much. Have a good evening. Thank you so much. Take care, guys. All right. That was good. That was some stuff. good stuff. That was good. Man. Yes. Um, People really enjoyed that. Yes. I like this one. Zachary says, that great, great talk tonight. That's good. Yes. Karen Harris says, wow, that's where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. Yes, it is. Blessed by this discussion. Let's have him back, Emily says. Yes. <laughs> I, I agree with this I message. With I support that. that. I support I, you know what I'd kind of like to have him back on? If we can think about it is I would love to have him back for like kind of an ancient perspective on social justice, what we call social justice. Mm -hmm. That could be a fun conversation. It really could be. See what we can talk about. What did it look like in the early church? Yeah. Yeah. So, yes, yes, that's yes. Some good stuff. He'll say it's just justice. Yes, I know. <laughs> justice is only social because people are involved. That's right. Yes. So it's justice. Um, don't go. God bless you, brother. I know. Right, Rochelle. And this is Rochelle. She said it's her first time watching. Hello. Hello. We are glad that you are here. That's right. Yes. Yes. So many good comments. People really had a good time tonight with Abuna Anthony. Yeah, so. that was such a good good word. Yeah. Um, I could have had my fan out the whole time. I was like, <laughs> wow, that was good. Hey, what's going on on December 6th? Hmm, what is going on in December uh, 6th? December 6th. Oh, I know. The launch party. Yes. For Dr. Thaddeus Williams' book, The, the Long Awaited. Long Awaited. I remember when we were talking about it last May. People were like, I need that book now. I know, right? <laughs> yes. Okay, so. Confronting big... Injustice Without Compromising Truth, written by Dr. Thaddeus J. Williams. And some friends of the show uh, contributing some chapters. Our yeah. friends Sam say. Contri contribute chapters. Or vignettes. Um, yeah. Yeah, kind of some personal stories. Yeah, Sam say, Neil Shinvi, Edwin Ramirez, myself. Yeah. There might be no. I think that that's it. Who's okay. been on our show? Yeah, okay. yeah. So several friends of our ministry are just talking be about their journey with the yeah with social Ooh. justice, and it it's good. It's gonna be gonna be really good. You can um, 
Tune in to the launch party on December 6th. You can pre-order Show the Love for Thaddeus Williams by pre-ordering that book and show Amazon and Zondervan that this is a conversation that needs to be had and that people are wanting to to have have this conversation. And have alternative, non-critical race theory voices. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you like what we're doing by getting behind Thaddeus's book, you're sending a clear message to Zondervan Hey, publish more books like this that don't come at it from a critical theory standpoint. So we want to really show Zondervan, which is a big Christian publisher and has quite frankly published some more, some books that are more on the critical theory side of the conversation. We want to show them like, Hey, we're, we're, we will support this, this type of work mm-hmm. with our money. And that's one of the things you're always saying. We've got to invest in your voice, your vote, and your dollar. So this is the dollar part. Yes, it yeah. is. Yes, it is. And then talking about your dollar, on December 1st, we are having, well, the Center for Biblical Unity is having our very first Giving Tuesday event. Yes, yes, yes. So on Tuesday, it's the first Tuesday after Thanksgiving, we are doing a Giving Tuesday promotion. It'll be for 24 hours and we need your help. Um, we're asking for people to donate 40 bucks. Now, it's not just that you're you're just roguely giving. Um, we are desperately saving and looking forward to 2021. One of our goals is to save for a salary for an admin person for the Center for Biblical Unity, someone who can distinctly be just like an assistant to me um, because of all of the travel and speaking and everything else that goes into what needs to happen to make sure that our ministry runs properly Monique needs sleep y'all I do let's just be clear there's that (laughs) she needs sleep (laughs) um and so in exchange for your forty dollars you will get access to a private donor video between and and it's a conversation on systemic racism between Neil Shinvi Pat Sawyer Krista and myself and then a private YouTube live stream question and answer with Krista and I where, and I'm still working to see if I can get a little something, something, another guest for the, for the question and answer time. But that will be on YouTube the Thursday after on the third. And so we'll be answering questions regarding systemic racism and. But, but I think what's really important about this, this resource that we're creating and this will again be just exclusively for our giving Tuesday donors of $40 is that it because one of the most common questions we get is, is systemic racism real? Well, mm-hmm. first of all, what is it? Is it real? And how do we see it today? Mm-hmm. And so we're going to, we tackled a, some of those questions in the inver- interview we did last August with Pat Sawyer. But we really want to do a deeper dive on how does it show up today? Like, how do we kind of have a, a bit of a, you know, like a criteria or a rubric to mm-hmm. know, oh, I'm seeing a system here play. In, in play that, that has mm-hmm. a potentially that there's a problem here. And that do, not everything is systemic. Not everything, is but systemic but injustice. How right? do we identify things that are? Yeah. And where are we seeing the the like results of systemic racism from things that happened in the sixties, seventies, eighties? You know, redlining didn't technically end it might have ended on paper but we still see we can actually still see um redlining being at play with some banks today people have gotten in trouble just a couple years ago but you know 
by and large, like 95, 96 is where you see like the majority of it like falling off. But where do I, what are the implications of that today? Are there any implications of redlining today that we can see? What are some of their thoughts on how do we, you know, work, like work to, to curb this or um, should the church be doing anything in areas that have been redlined as a way of, uh, as a justice act, you know? So what are their thoughts on that? So, so it'll be a new content that we haven't covered before in any other resource. Yes. And only available to donors of 40 bucks or more who give on December 1st, December 1st. We yeah. are tracking the December 1st giving. Don't do it on, you know, November 30th. And don't be coming at me on November 2nd, midnight to 1159 <laughs> on December 1st, Giving yeah. Tuesday. Now, if you donate 50 bucks or more, um, so the extra $10 will get you into a private Zoom room that we will will interact with people directly, directly on the Zoom chat. Yeah. So... Yes. All and we will right. have a big Giving Tuesday link and um, big banner splash. up. Yeah, it's going to be really good. It's our very, very, very first one. So please contribute. I'm so first. It really is. We've only been around for like seven months, y'all. <laughs> it's our first one. Everything's first. But it's so exciting. It's exciting to, to know that we have the support of the family. Yes. All right. All right, friends. Uh, they're talking about having a boot. When can Abuna come back? Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, um, we, we have to, you know. Yeah, we'll have to work on that. So, all right. Thank you, everyone, for joining into the conversation this week. We hope you found it helpful. I love Caleb's question he's, or statement he said earlier. He said, um, I'm going to go back to it a little Engage bit here. Truth, Engage Truth. He said, um, let's go out. I can't find it back. But he said, let's go out and be bold this week. Yes. You know? To um, really be bold in our faith and and to think about and meditate on some of the things that Abuna Anthony really encouraged us in and and share with your kids start that conversations. Uh, someone wants to know: Do they get a receipt for tax purposes? No, no, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. <laughs> yes, you do. We actually on September 12th we became um, tax exempt. We received our 501c3. And so praise God for that, because that was not an ordeal, but it was just a lot. And I did it myself. And so, yes, but we got it. And we are going to be definitely sending out tax deductible receipts. They should come automatically when you give. It'll be an automated response. Okay. Well, thanks for watching, everyone. And uh, remember, we will be dark next week. So we will see you in two weeks or something probably Christmas related. All right. We'll see you. Bye. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.